This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson and per the use, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? Doing pretty well. How are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. We are uh, we are digging. Well, I guess I say we, that's a little bit royal. I am digging my way back into life after being out of the office for a couple of days. So that, <laughs> you know, no good, no good deed goes unpunished. That That is certainly true in the professional services arena, where if you leave the office, and attempt to say not work while you're out of the office. When you come back, it's just a lot more work. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's yeah. tough. You know, it's funny is I remember when I first started practicing and I would hear like the stories of attorneys who are like, yeah, I get like 100 to 500 emails a day. I'm like, what? How is that possible? How is I like if I got one to three, I was like, ooh, I'm popular today. And now I'm at the stage where I'm probably around like, the 20 to 50, depending on the day. And uh-huh. that's overwhelming to me. So I still can't imagine like the 100 to 500, multiply that by two to three days out of the office. That's that's overwhelming. I get it. I get it. I have no desire to ever attempt to get my inbox to zero. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a possibility. And you know how like on your phone, like the little I, the little app icon will show you the number of pending emails. Mine are always like in the thousands. And, <gasps> uh, and my wife laughs at me when I pull it up. She's like, what? How many emails? Like, you haven't read that many emails? Like, you don't understand. <laughs> That's not a thousand important substantive emails. That's a thousand emails from like a thousand different places that I just don't have time to talk to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, 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 that gives me anxiety. I was like, I, I'm an inbox zero person. Ooh. And it's just like, that's that's how I check things off. I have a million folders and I'll, I'll make sure they're all going into their proper folder afterwards. But yeah, if I can scroll in my email inbox, that gives me anxiety. I'm like, no, I want to be able to see whatever I've got on one page. And that just, that, that helps me sleep at night. Yeah, I, I can't do that. I know. And I hear people <laughs> who are, so, uh, I'll say self-proclaimed efficiency experts, because that's the way it always seems to me. Um, and they all seem to claim that you should do what you are doing, clear out your inbox, put things in folders. What, what happens to me, because the volume is so big, is if I put it into the folder, it might as well not exist. Because <laughs> now I'm looking at 50 other different things. I can't remember that 51st thing, you know, yeah. like that it's in this particular folder and I got to look there and I don't, I guess I'm not organized enough. That's why I'm not one of those gurus and I can't self-proclaim that I am, I guess. <laughs> to to each their own, teach their own. As long as you have a system, then you got it. You, you do what you do what you got to do. That works That's for you. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> That's what I needed. I just needed some affirmation that I'm okay. Yeah, you yeah. do you. You do you, Brett. Yeah, I don't need to go out and buy a bunch of books and read them and then you know organize my day by 
30 minute chunks or something. <laughs> oh gosh, no. I tried that. That was too overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, that's not possible in our yeah. line of business. No. <laughs> well, speaking of our line of business, we're joined again by our friend Darren Case. Darren, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, Rachel, we, we can't build Brent's ego up too much, so we need to knock him down for you know, a peg or two for the next Please do. <laughs> 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 we could do that by the end of this episode, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will say this. This might be like the best thing I say on the entire podcast. One of the things that I've learned is if you're ever going out of office is in your signature line for your email, kind of like guilt trip your clients into knowing like two weeks in advance, like, hey, I'm going on a family vacation for the first time ever to Legoland. Can you leave me alone? <laughs> P.S. I'll be gone from this date to this date. Like giving them advance notice uh, sometimes helps. I, I'm not going to say it always helps, but I, I think I, when I come back from the vacation, the inbox only has 500 emails instead of Brent's, you know, 2050. So, <laughs> yeah, I really do feel bad. I mean, under ordinary circumstances, I struggle to reply to people as quickly as I want to reply to people. But then when I leave and come, you know, when I'm out of the office for a few days, if I'm good and I actually like spend time with my family and don't do work on my vacation, then when I come back, you know, I'm like a week, week and a half behind. I'm replying to to messages that are kind of stale and not that not that exciting anymore. And there's just nothing I can do because it takes it takes a week or more just to catch up to the flow of, of uh, emails in the inbox. I, I don't even think it was, it was possible, like w with everything we had going on with potential tax law changes, which I know we're gonna discuss today, I don't even think it was possible to respond in the manner that we ordinarily do, like, you know, in a timely manner. And, and you know, a lot of estate planning attorneys, tax attorneys, we had to literally triage our, our inbox is, you know, focus on the ones saying, okay, you are a high net worth individual, ultra high net worth individual. We need to get something done before year end so you get priority. But that doesn't stop all of the other clients with all of their other issues. And there was a, a certain firm in Montana that uh, I referred a client to that just had ties to Arizona but lived in Montana. Mm -hmm. And she contacted me back and said that they weren't taking any basic estate planning clients until, you know, March of 2022. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wow. Good for them. <laughs> so, but I mean, God's honest truth is that was pretty typical in our area, but things things are changing a little bit. Yeah. So maybe uh, give a little bit of gloss to that. Explain explain how it has been changing or has changed for the folks, and then we can we can talk about the last four, five, six weeks here in this year. Oh, sure. So. Uh, I've been saying this phrase a lot lately, but Congress has made my life a living hell for about 18 months or so. Um, they've been threatening on uh, taking away all of my toys, you know, intentionally defective grantor trusts, slats that are intentionally defective. And as I've said to anybody who listened to me, but definitely on the, the last podcast, is I have an unhealthy obsession with grats, and they were going to take those away from me. <laughs> But anyway, so Congress ultimately has been threatening to change the tax laws when Biden got elected and the Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate. There looks like there is going to be real tax reform, I guess, again, because the Trump administration did it. But they were going to do a lot of things, drop the exemption amount from 11.7 to allegedly 3.5. Then they kind of scaled it back and said, no, we're just going to drop it to roughly six. They originally said that they were going to 
quote, take away capital gains tax treatments for wealthy people. They didn't define that. They scaled that back and said, no, we're just going to raise the top capital gains rate from 20 to 25 percent. They're going to take away the grantor trust rules. They're going to change things about valuation discounts. It's going to take away 1031 exchanges that have been in the tax code for since the beginning of the tax code. But, but lo and behold, um, I don't know how many Thursdays ago it was, but I was literally in a meeting with clients and, you know, my phone kept buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. And so I, I said to the clients, like, listen, I'm sorry, you know, usually when my phone buzzes this, I, I've done something wrong. My wife is angry at me. <laughs> Just kidding. No, but anyway, so, but I, I had to check my phone and it was text messages from Brent Nelson text messages from TJ Ryan, and text messages from a whole host of tax and estate planning attorneys from all over the, the country texting me saying, hey, did you see the news? <laughs> like, no, I'm in a meeting right now. Like, I'm going to have to jump on it. And so, lo and behold, none of the things that they've been threatening to change for a very long time are going to happen. They're not dropping the estate tax exemption amount from 11.7 to 6. They're not messing around with capital gains. All of the fancy tools that we do uh, really on a day-to-day -day basis now, they're not going to take those things away. They're not impacting grant-to-trust rules, valuation discounts, and a whole host of other things. But honestly, like the last 18 months, I've been doing SLATs, Spousal Lifetime Access Trusts, with the good old separate property agreement that goes along with it, intentionally defective grantor trusts, and gifting millions upon millions of dollars to these trusts. I could probably estimate how much wealth has been transferred, but you know, it, it sounds like for one, it's bragging, but no, I, I don't mention the number because it just mentions how miserable I've been, <laughs> you know, like saying, wow, I, I did, I did 27, you know, idgits like at the end of last year. And this year I'm going to break that record. Like, no, that just means the misery index is high for an estate planning attorney. But, but that, that's yeah. where the Derek case is at. I know that's where Brent and, and Rachel are, are at as well. I got to say, I was really worried for, about you, Darren, when when we read the, the first proposals that came out and I knew you had the unhealthy obsession with grats. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, how is Darren doing? Does he need like a defibrillator <laughs> right now or something? Because they're about to take away his favorite tool right now. <laughs> like check check in on your estate planning attorney. He or she's not well. It's like I need a <laughs> meme for us as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that sounds really familiar to us. The the day that they uh, they issued the the revised House proposal, because they kind of have been threatening uh, in the Senate that they were going to change the proposal. But when the House Ways and Means Committee issued the revised proposal that then added, you know, dropped the proposals to change all of your favorite tools and, and tricks and toys, um, the sense of relief that I felt, the sense of euphoria and like I'm on vacation that I felt was tremendous. It wasn't necessarily tied to the very specific tricks and toys and all those things. I'm a bit agnostic to whatever those are because whatever they give us, we'll, I'll, I'll use it anyways. But it was the uh, the level of urgency of the list of transactions that we had going on that had not yet closed just vanished at in the it, well, at least the the level came way down. I shouldn't say vanished, but it came way down, and it was such a relief to know that we didn't have to close all these transactions like in the next week. Yeah, I don't know how we would have got it all done with these transactions. So, so you know, I described tax and estate planning attorneys as being the most miserable 
I honestly think it was the business valuation experts that were the most miserable. Um, Tody Lawless over at Ide Bailey, I'm sure you guys know, um, she's just absolutely buried in these things. And it's just, I don't know how they're going to get them all done. So it, it was a sigh of relief for, for the estate planning attorneys, but I'm like, well, gosh, these business appraisals, they're, they're going to be very happy as well. I think the the thing that scared me the most, but then became perhaps the most comical thing, was ultimately the retroactive component. Not the retroactive to January 1st of 2021. I never really see that ever happening, but the retroactive to the grantor trust rules to, what was it, September 13th? And so they kind of snuck that in there to a certain extent where transactions were already underway and we drafted the irrevocable trust in a certain manner. And those were done. Clients had paid for them. And then they, they kind of snuck that in there. But we're, we are still waiting on the appraisal to finalize. And then the gifting of the, the interest into the irrevocable trust, where what they were ultimately claiming is that any irrevocable trusts that are defective grantor trusts, the evil defective grantor trust that they're trying to attack, that if you would gift the assets into that irrevocable trust after that you know, September 13th date, that ultimately those assets would be included in the you know, person making the gift, the trust doors, taxable estate for estate tax purposes. So, so that was terrifying, trying to figure out and navigate that. And there was a lot of hoping and praying that those things actually didn't come to fruition. I mean, I was pretty certain that if they passed anything, everything would be as of January 1st of 2022. But, but that, that rule terrified me a little bit. But what was humorous about it is that I, I don't think our elected officials fully understood what was actually in the bill or what these provisions meant. And so when the AICPA and ACTEC ultimately had discussions with the House Ways and, Comm House Ways and Means Committee all of a sudden, they changed their tune. They said, oh, no, no, that retroactive component for grantor trust rules, that's ultimately, that was a mistake. That was a typo in the actual, you know, language of the bill. Now, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use clean language on this podcast, but I call BS on that. Now, this might sound like conspiracy theorists, but you know darn well that there's these congressmen, congresswomen, senators, they're like, well, wait a minute. I haven't completed my idget or slat because I've been whining and bickering in you know, Congress. I need time to get this done. So all of a sudden, like I got that email um, from the ACTEC listserv about the fact that, no, that was you know, a mistake. I just started laughing. I'm like, sure, it was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I don't so. think it was a mistake. I, I don't think so at all. It, it was interesting because the, the changes that they selected – you know, just to have one little more dig at this before we uh, move on to the end of the year. But the changes that they selected were a bit different from what has been on the hit list historically. You know, uh, during the Obama administration, consistently on the hit list were things like valuation discounts. Yes, they went after valuation discounts, but they kind of did it in a different way than they they uh, were proposing to do it during the Obama administration. They've had it uh, grats on the hit list for a long time, although not quite the way that they did it in this proposal. And it was to limit the the term, to limit the the value of the remainder interest, to make them look a lot more like charitable remainder trusts. And, you know, a lot of those little things that 
have historically made the list didn't really make the list in this proposal. And I think that was what was the most surprising and to a degree uh, jarring for somebody in our position because we weren't really prepared for it. It was like, this is completely different and it's a totally different idea and you have to change the way you're thinking in order to uh, in order to deal with this new way, you know, this new idea, this new planning technique. But it's a, uh, as they say, it's it's not over till the fat lady sings. So they're still negotiating. And I, I read just this morning that they literally are still negotiating. Although the quotes I was reading this morning is that people in Congress are expecting that they are not going to have very many uh, solid holiday plans. Their expectation is to continue negotiating on this uh, infrastructure or not the infrastructure bill, but the reconciliation bill, possibly right up to the end, possibly right up to New Year's Eve. And uh, obviously, if they do that by New Year's Eve, there's not going to be anything that we can do to address changes that they put in the final bill. But in the meantime, here we are floating around for another four or five, six weeks. Uh, so the question that I'm getting and that I want to pose to you, Darren, is so what do we do? <laughs> Give us the crystal ball. Perfect answer. <laughs> well, the, the correct answer, at least in my mind, to clients is this. But the, for the sake of my own sanity, I'll, I'll give you the, the other answer. So we'll start off with what I, I believe is the, the correct answer. And I know we said this on the, the probably the last podcast, and this is, you know, quoting, you know, Brent, is that the best time to do a gift is today. The next best time to do a gift is tomorrow. And the next best time after that is the day after. I'm sure Brent says it like a lot nicer, better than I do. But ultimately, you know, that's it, is that transferring the assets and using your exemption, use your exemption before you lose your exemption, is, is the best thing to do. Now, I don't think we're going to lose the exemption, but getting the assets out of your estate, using up the exemption and all of the appreciation, that's the huge part in getting out of your estate. So the clients I'm telling them is this, is that, listen, even though they're not going to change certain tax laws, if you have the means and the wealth to trans transition it now, that would be the safest thing to do, is that we can transfer the assets to an irrevocable gift trust, whether it's a SLAT, IGIT, or you know, there's other types of trust out there. Those are just two of my favorites right now, um, it, it is to do it now. And that way, you can really take advantage of the tax laws in place and all of the appreciation is outside of your estate. And so if you live 10, 20, 30 more years, it's not just saving the 40% on the 11.7 you gifted, it's whatever that number ends up being. As far as what's going to happen, you know, next year, um, you know, I, I've done presentations before the last three, you know, major presidential elections, and it's always funny going back to see what my predictions were. Some of them are scary, like the slides that I did. I'm like, wow. <laughs> but I always admit that, you know, I, I'm sick of looking into the crystal ball as to what Congress and the Senate and the White House are going to do. But I don't think it's likely that they're going to get any tax legislation that's significant past next year that changes the exemption amounts. I don't think they're going to take away the grantor trust rules or any of the things that, you know, we mentioned earlier. I just don't see them passing a law in 2022 and then saying it's effective as of January 1st, 2022. I think they're using all of their political capital to get some semblance of a bill passed now. They'll pat themselves on the back and say, yay, we did tax legislation, but then they're going to move on to other things. And they have to, obviously, because, you know, their citizens want them to do lots of things and they're not doing 
very much of anything. So again, my summary is essentially this, is that get the, still get the transactions done now rather than waiting because we don't know what will happen in 2022, but most likely the new runway is we must get this done before the end of the year in 2025. So I think that's the correct answer. So now, now the personal answer for Darren's sanity, Brent's sanity, and Rachel's sanity is, hey, <laughs> it's been quite the last 18 months. So just think long and hard about whether or not you need to get the transaction done this year. I haven't seen my kids in a while. I'd really like to take them on vacation. And, and by the way, I, I don't like working on Thanksgiving or Christmas or any holidays, believe it or not, which I have, you know, many times before. And, you know, some of the clients give me pie, like, you know, during the family meeting at Thanksgiving. But I, I'd rather, I love my clients to death. I'd rather spend Thanksgiving with my own family. <laughs> so, it anyway. is preferable. Yeah, it is preferable. Yeah, it's, you know, I've, I, yes, I've been saying that my, my quote of the best day to, to make the gift is today and then tomorrow and then the next day. The, the other thing I've been saying to people uh, when they ask is, well, just because Congress can't act doesn't mean the time value of money ceases to exist. So it's just basic economic principles continue to, prevail. And that means that making gifts is the smart thing to do. The the other element to it, though, Darren, is I kind of think to a degree what you've seen in this proposal, albeit the proposal, again, didn't include a lot of things that have been on the hit list historically, is a little bit of a showing of hands where it does appear that if they were ever going to do some of the things they proposed, like changing the grant or trust rules, that they would grandfather in uh, pre-existing trusts. And so if you're thinking, yeah, they might do this, try to do this again in the future, and there, there is at least one quote from a few months ago of, of Biden basically saying, we'll get what we can get now, and then we'll come back for the rest later. Um, so if they're going to come back for the rest later in the future, at least there's some indication that if you've done it up front, you're going to get grandfathered in, or more than likely you're going to get grandfathered in, or your expectation should be that you're going to get grandfathered in. And that that's another component that makes me uh, think, yeah, let's let's get all the transactions that we had that were sort of in process. Let's get them done. Now, a couple of things that you mentioned that um, that to me, for my own personal benefit, when I lay down at night, help me sleep better is number one, you're, you mentioned slats, doing slats and, and having uh, separate property agreements to do these slats. And just for a little bit of context, that's where so you have spouses, they own community property. They have an agreement that says this is his, this is hers, and then they can make gifts from the his or hers pile. Whether you do two slats or just one is sort of uh, up to the client and, and the professional, but that's the usual setup. For me, I prefer what makes me sleep the best at night if there's a little bit of time between when we did that se that separate property agreement and when we actually make the gift into the slat. So they're not happening on the exact same day. And a little, you know, every little bit of cushion in there makes me feel a little bit better. So this opportunity, the lack of urgency has given me a little bit of reprieve from some of the time constraints that have been placed on a few of the slot transactions that we had going on. So I don't know if you're feeling a similar sentiment or not. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yes, absolutely. The um, I, I do not like doing slats too close together in addition to the separate property agreement, like, you know, giving the ability to settle. And it, the preference is that you do one slat in one taxable year and then another slat in a different taxable year and sufficiently 
modify the terms of the two slats so there, you avoid the reciprocal trust doctrine. Um, I don't fear the reciprocal trust doctrine as, as much as some other attorneys do. Uh, Domingo Sue gave a, and I think I mentioned this on the last time, gave an amazing presentation on you know, navigating the reciprocal trust doctrine and why you shouldn't be too scared of it. I think it was 2017, the Notre Dame Tax and Estate Planning Seminar. Highly recommend anybody checking it out. But really, it's the, the having a slat in two separate tax years, not changing the terms to avoid that. Well, with, with all of this going on and just the substantial demand for we have to get slats done, we want to do this and that, I'm like, listen, like, remember when I contacted you back when Biden got elected, you know, like a couple of years ago? Uh, you know, I'm just hearing from you now. We could have started this transaction and sufficiently spaced it out. So, you know, recently I've done slats that, you know, were too close together, at least in my mind. Do I think they'd pass muster still? Absolutely. But now I'm considering, since we still haven't funded, you know, one of them, is that just draft a, a new one that ultimately is, you know, towards the end of this year or, you know, potentially next year to kind of eliminate that potential risk. So it, it mm -hmm. is, the delay is, is allowing me to sleep at night more soundly, knowing that, you know, some of these things that you, you were kind of forced to push through, that you, you don't have to do that anymore. It actually, and, and yeah, I'm feeling the same way. We had a similar feeling. You mentioned like uh, appraisals and valuation issues. We, we had a similar uh, issue trying to uh, get transactions completed before you really have the appraisal done and therefore using valuation clauses, which means that you need to set up some entity to hold a variety of assets so that you can then make it uh a gift of that entity's interest and hopefully apply your valuation clause to it to, to constrain the values which you're going to get appraised later on because you don't have time to do it now and then you know in like a week or a couple of days same same issue you know those sorts of transactions again I'm, I'm with you like i think they still pass muster but do i sleep the best at night if we set up the entity this year and then we do the gift the next year yeah I do. I feel I feel I pat myself on the back a little bit and I feel a lot better about life. But that that will those weren't the circumstances we were operating under. The other thing that um, the the proposals did, at least for me, is it forced me to start to think a little I'll say creatively, but that's that's probably too strong a word. But just think differently about transactions. So let's take the, the slat example. The usual thing that I hear from clients about slats is, yeah, I understand what you're saying, Brent, but I just can't part with this income. I just can't part with whatever. I just can't live without it. You know, I got to have access to it somehow. And usually I tell them, well, if you have the slat, I don't want you dipping into it that anyways, if you don't need it. But then it got me thinking like, okay, well, is there a way that we can structure this and get you access to the funds? Obviously there's the sale to an intentionally defective trust. You take back a note, it can give you access. And then the other thing that we started thinking really long and hard about and have done a couple is to do an uh, intentionally defective trust and then fund uh, a preferred partnership and take back preferred units to get the income stream paying off of those preferred units to the settlor of the trust. And that's something that we weren't doing before and we weren't really thinking about in this particular context before, but because of the circumstances and just trying to come up with answers for clients uh 
in some instances, we were doing those sorts of things. So, for example, clients who had uh, real estate interests that you really couldn't sell because there were too many lending restrictions on the asset or you know, you'd have to pay some ridiculous fee to renegotiate all the loans to, to do big gift transactions. In some of those instances, we were able to package them together, package those entities up together as preferred partnerships, get some of the same benefits as if we had done a sale and then make everybody happy without you know, making the banks upset. So a lot of these little issues that again, we I probably wouldn't have done in the past, I was forced to think about it from a different perspective and come up with new solutions. So in a sense, uh, I'm glad I had to do that because uh, I think it made me a better practitioner overall, but man alive, it was not fun doing that within a week. <laughs> yeah, no, fortunately, I, I didn't have to, to, to think about that specific issue. Surprisingly, I didn't have to think about that specific issue too much. I mean, there was a few clients, you can't avoid this, where they want to gift the family limited partnership or the LLC, but they're like, well, can I stay on as manager? And I'm like, hey, I know what you're getting at. <laughs> There's this thing called Section 2036 that tries to yank assets back into your estate if you exert too much control over assets that you gifted away. So, you know, technically there's no absolute prohibition on it. I'm saying it's a very bad idea, um, and so I didn't like it. So they were ultimately angling at that, but, but you know, for a lot of the transactions, um, you know, for the business interest components, it's clients that were doing it you know, well in advance of a liquidity event, the sale of the business in the future. Obviously, that presents its own unique issues. If you have a valuation here for gift tax purposes and all of a sudden it it gets sold for much, much higher, obviously that might be problematic if the income tax area speaks with the gift tax area of the Internal Revenue Service. But um, it is a lot of cash gifts, believe it or not, that I was ultimately doing. Lovely problem to have, just having that $11.7 million in cash sitting around. I'm looking around my office. I don't have that to gift away, but uh, but, but no, it's cash, marketable securities, some business interests, um, that, a lot of that. But now the creative component, and kind of going back to what your original comment, is Congress has now showed their hand. Kudos to them for their creativity. Looking at it, you know, from the other side of this is that the grantor trust rules, the intentionally defective grantor trust rules, and some people probably hate me for saying this. It's like, it's like you know, that is a loophole in the tax code where if you took a step back, you're like, okay, you know, arguably I can see why they're trying to close this loophole, but the, the extent and as far as they went to try to attack these things, I don't think we've ever seen this before. So there, there is a creativity component, and you know, I, I say that there had to have been several high-level practitioners, I think one of them actually is in the state of Arizona, and and not to name names, I think it's actually somebody southern Arizona, that was kind of working with Congress on letting them know, hey, if you kill these things, it's really going to cause havoc to estate planning attorneys and probably raise significant revenue. So, but no, kudos to them on the creativity, but it has caused estate planning attorneys to also, you know, be creative themselves. And anytime they close a tax loophole, what ultimately happens is it it probably opens up another one. <laughs> yeah, we've we've talked about that before. And as Brent says, there's no such thing as a loophole. They're tax planning opportunities. That's what they are. <laughs> but but to your point, right, is it's it's you know, we're we're dealt the playbook and at the end of the day, 
whatever they change in the playbook, we're going to find the the new tax planning opportunities at that point. So it's just it's playing with with whatever we got. And yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, when you see the the traditional estate planning techniques, the islets, the grants, the idgets that were being attacked. And these are, you know, trusts that have been used for years and years and years. And we've got so many clients who've set these up. And then, you know, to Brent and I were talking and our, our other colleague, Deborah and I were talking, especially with islets. And we were just astounded that the life insurance industry wasn't going to be completely up in arms. And I'm sure they 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 raised their voices and, and that kind of helped uh, move things along to the different proposals. But yeah, it really makes you think, how do we now pivot and, and really get creative with these traditional structures that we've always been so used to doing? I, honestly, I, I think well, you're absolutely right, Rachel, with, with the islet component. Um, islets uh, are, are kind of a forgotten art form in the area of estate planning, but God, there's so many islets still in existence. And I think the life insurance you know, lobbyists, which are extraordinarily strong, they were a little late to the ball game in realizing, like, hey, this will kill islets going forward if, if this legislation goes forward. As much as I love doing crummy notices, and God, I love crummy notices. They're just the most wonderful thing. Clients love them. They, anyway, I'm being joking. But I think that they got into the ball game a, a bit late, and, and they had a very strong push. And, and I think perhaps we can thank them a little bit that the, the removal of a lot of these things pointed out the fact that they had a, a very strong say on what the legislation ultimately might end up looking like. Yeah, and they did. They uh, they sort of pushed the the burden onto non-grantor trusts in the current proposal because the the you know what people will start thinking of is almost the billionaire surtax, the many many millionaires uh, surtax applies to non-grantor trusts after something like two hundred thousand dollars of income. So the the burden has been shifted away from things like islets, which are grantor trusts, onto things that are non-islets, which are non-grantor trusts. I think it's going to, if that goes forward, it's going to make our jobs interesting because we're going to become uh, income uh, containing, you know, sort of like trust income containing lawyers. We're going to have to try to figure out ways to to make sure that trusts don't have too much income and they don't get hit with these taxes and you can shift income out of trust to beneficiaries. Somewhat to a, a little bit of the theme that we've been talking about, which is if they change the rules and one way or the other, like they were proposing to change the rules or the way they're proposing to change the rules now, ultimately what's gonna happen is the three of us will just adjust and our clients will adjust and we'll just deal with whatever hand we're dealt. And more than likely it will not kill this industry. That's my bold prediction. <laughs> There's always going to be a need for estate planning attorneys, regardless of how, I mean, the more punitive the tax laws become, the greater the need there will be for us. But even if they, so I remember when Trump got elected, the Republicans controlled everything, and they were going to, quote unquote, abolish the estate tax. They were finally going to abolish it. Well, my response was, well, the estate tax has been abolished four times, but let's not forget that the estate tax celebrated its 100th birthday not too long ago. It's come back from the dead four times. It, it will never go away. <laughs> but even if they abolish the estate tax, I, I mean, there's still a whole lot of estate planning that, that still needs to do, be done, avoiding probate 
making sure that you don't give too much to your kids too soon and stifle their ambitions in life or, you know, don't screw up multiple generations. There's a whole host of other things that, that are needed. Well, and I think people forget that, you know, say 20 years ago, the estate tax exemption was $600,000 per person. And not too far into the distant past, you passed, you didn't even have the marital deduction. So the the estate tax, I think it's, it. I mean, to a degree, we use it as an excuse in some ways. You know, it's an excuse to do certain planning, partly because the numbers can be so big, uh, especially on the higher end of things, because it's a 40% tax on value. It's not like the capital gains where it's only on the gains. But setting that aside, all the reasons that you do the planning are completely tax neutral. Things like you were just listing off, like, is this going to stifle somebody's ambition? Will this protect family money from the claims of creditors? Will uh, soon-to-be ex-spouses be able to reach into the family piggy bank and, and take a huge chunk of the money? You know, Will the money be used for proper charitable purposes? Will it support the charities that the family wants to support? Will it get the results that it wants on the charitable front? I mean, all those things really have nothing to do with taxes. And those have always been the reasons that a lot of state estate planning has been done. It's just there's a lot of kind of pretext or or equivocation about the estate tax itself that has been layered on top of these reasons. Yeah, the, the asset protection component of just the basic revocable living trust and saying, listen, if your kids are old enough, responsible enough, and you think they're good stewards of the wealth, Rather than distributing the assets out, just hold them in trust. Allow them to serve as the trustee of their own subtrust, take over those assets, and that way they can pass them on. And if they're dynasty trust, GST exempt, they can pass them on to their kids in a, a tax-efficient manner as well. But the protection from divorcing spouses, litigators, and all whole host of other things, that, that seems to resonate with, with, with clients quite well. <laughs> yeah, they, there are two things that motivate clients. One is uh, giving money to the government. That's probably why the estate tax has been such a powerful motivator for estate planning. And the other is giving money to uh, to uh, ex-sons and daughters-in-laws. That is a very <laughs> powerful motivator. <laughs> uh, well, Darren, we uh, we could talk to you forever, um, but I know you also have to sleep just like us. So uh, we'll we'll cut it off there. We'll We'll add all of your contact information to the show notes, of course, so that people can find you. Uh, but we can't thank you enough for spending time with us again uh, in doing this. No, I, I love doing it. And besides, you know, I, I don't tell you this, Brent. So all those neat quotes and phrases that you say, so I write them down and I steal them. Oh, I say sure. to my clients and I'm like, you know what? That's original Darren Case material. That time yeah. value money thing that never goes away. I'm going to perfect it. So, no, but thank you. Guys. I'm looking for my residuals, bud. I can't <laughs> wait. That's going to be a big check. So, well, thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, Brent. Uh, this is always a lot of fun. I look forward to hanging out with you guys in 2022. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Darren. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. Uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.